This interview has been a long time coming because Siobhan Charles is someone I've known for quite a few years now. When I met her, she was the head of global music and youth culture communications at Instagram. Prior to that, she held a similar position at Twitter. And last year, she became TikTok's first head of global diversity and inclusion communications. Siobhan is one of those people who has been working tirelessly behind the scenes to help creators of color gain more visibility and recognition. And she lays it all out in her new book, Black Internet Effect. In my conversation with Siobhan, we talk about her trailblazing career, and I don't use trailblazing lightly here, how she's developing her personal creative pursuits, and what she sees as a next step for creators of color. This is Creative Control. I'm your host, Casey Finey. Each week, I'll be unpacking the driving forces and people shaping the creator economy and what it all means for its future. Hey, Siobhan. Hi. <laughs> this has been such a long time coming, and I'm so excited to talk to you. And I just gave you like a pretty detailed introduction, but I want to hear from you how you describe yourself. So the floor is yours to flex. So who is wow. Siobhan Charles? Casey, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be having this discussion with you. So much just respect and admiration for the work that you do. So thank oh, you for the space that you take up. Seriously. Oh, we're starting on that note? Yes, oh, we see, are. Listen. We are. Here are the flowers. Flower delivery. <laughs> Give them to people while they're still alive. So exactly. this, I mean, this whole episode is your flowers because uh, I've been a admir like an admirer of your work for so long. But yes, please. Thank you, For Casey. those who don't know, because I know who you are, but for the people who <laughs> don't know... Tell them what's up. Who is Siobhan? Yeah, Charles? so I'm Siobhan. I am going by my first name only these days. I am a multi-hyphenate creator. I have spent the majority of my career working at the intersection of tech, entertainment, and culture, and community, and community advocacy. So I'm a musician and artist. I've been playing the flute, just writing songs and poetry since the first or second grade. I'm classically trained and jazz trained in flute. I play a little bit of piano. I rap. Writing and my creative outlets are just as important to me as my day job and my professional career. I'm also a founder now of Future of Creatives and Magic Intermelanin, which are two of my own organizations that are near and dear to me that are really dedicated to bridging a lot of the gaps I've seen in the creative spheres I've occupied, as well as dedicated to passing the mic and amplifying and elevating underrepresented creators from people in my generation, from millennials to the next generation. You know, you just lightly brushed over your day job, which, I mean, you've held quite a lot of positions. Because I remember well, I first met you when you were working at Instagram and you came to the office. I think you were just taking general meetings. And I remember we had a whole conversation about Nicki Minaj. God knows what she was doing at that time. Um, but I just remember being like, who is this awesome woman who like could just just rolled up to my desk and just were just talking about the latest like in hip hop. And I was like, I like her. And I feel like we <laughs> just sort of kept in touch. And now you are doing amazing things at TikTok. So much of this is documented in your book, Black Internet Effect, which is was such a good read. It's so, I think Thank you. it touches on so many things. And I feel like I just, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but this book is as good as a place to start as any. So tell me about it. Like, how did Black Internet Effect come to be? I arrived at deciding to make this 
pocket-sized book about Black internet effect for a lot of different reasons. One being just the, my lens on the tech industry from starting at Twitter, which is totally full circle now, <laughs> being at Twitter when it was just a startup and going public with Twitter, that being my first real job in the tech industry and being there, then going to Instagram and Facebook, then going to Visco, then being at TikTok now, there's been kind of this full circle experience, but the constant unwavering truth is the impact that Black voices, Black creativity, and just BIPOC communities have on the platforms, just the amount of influence we yield and wield across these platforms. And from generation to generation, even through the years, over the decade, I've been from interning in tech to now working in tech, that has remained the same. The platforms change, the modes of communication change, the features themselves change, but that one thing continues to remain the same. And from my lens, it was important for me to address that with the next generation, with younger audiences, because I truly believe that we're already starting to see a shift in creative control, a shift in, in just ownership and accountability and what Black creators are doing for themselves on the internet. And I thought it was important for young Black youth, young BIPOC women, young just BIPOC communities to receive the information and hoping some of what I shared in the book can be a bit of a of an inspiration, a bit of a push for whether you want to work in tech or whether you are just trying to navigate the world as a person of color, as a young person of color, realizing that there's space for you, you can create space for you, you can normalize who you are in these environments that have been set up to reject you or where you might not see yourself in. And I, I really wanted to write the book through that lens and hopefully inspire those same girls or young people of color who I would see as my younger sisters or my nieces and just younger minds out there in the world. I really wanted to plant a seed with the book and also shed light on some of the challenges that I know many of my peers continue to go through too in the industry. So Black Internet Effect is main. I mean, I got a lot out of it in my big age of 36, but it's really targeted toward younger readers. And so, you know, I'm curious, like, what impact have you seen so far from the book with young readers? I'd say that it's relatable for them. I really wanted to make Black Internet Effect not too inside baseball industry, tech industry. So that's been really amazing to hear that they've been able to see themselves in a lot of the stories and anecdotes that I talk about, particularly with family. I've heard a lot of feedback on connective tissue with them also being the first in their family to do things and feeling hopeless, not having the same amount of money, not having the same resources as other people, being in positions where they don't have footsteps to follow. How do they figure it out? A lot of feedback I've gotten, too, from a couple of readings that I've done is young people being able to walk away with tangible information on steps they can take. All of these things in your environment and your life feel so out of control. You feel like you're a victim of circumstance. How do you seize control of your life? How do you put your hands on the steering wheel of your life and feel like you can take control back? You can take your power back through 
the decisions you make through being proactive, through believing that you have a say-so in your success beyond the trauma, beyond what you were born into and and the cards that you were dealt in your life. Absolutely. And it's really important to note that in your come up, there wasn't really any footsteps for you to follow in. I mean, at so many of your jobs in tech and media, you were the first in some capacity. And I mean, you have this passage where he said, you know, you're taught to work so hard for these kinds of opportunities to be in these coveted competitive spaces, but nobody ever really coaches you on how to successfully make it through and survive the spaces once you're actually there. And I think that that's a part that we don't talk about enough. Like we're told to, yeah, strive for that position, like go apply at Google, apply at all these companies. But what happens when you're actually accepted? Like, how do you navigate those spaces? And so what was your North Star in figuring out how to navigate an industry that didn't look like you? You know, this, I feel like the answer to this question is still unraveling. It's always, it's still top of mind for me, which is the beauty and the curse, (laughs) I think, of (laughs) taking up this space. I think more of what I've leaned on are the kind of muscle and skill building and resilience in staying flexible, resilience in staying curious, but resilience in looking for the answers I need and being proactive about seeking those answers by any means necessary, even if you have to look outside of your current peer group or your current coworkers. I think being able to connect with my community and constantly keeping my ear to the street, as my parents like to say, (laughs) and (laughs) staying in tune with my community and my professional community, I think has really helped me with figuring that out. I can't say I've always had a steady mentor per se, but I will say that I've kind of crowdsourced mentors by asking questions and staying curious and always sort of being okay with the answers might not be in the package that I want, or I might not have this person who's all knowing, who's going to coach Mm -hmm. me through how to negotiate my salary or how to land the next big job. Honestly, I've gotten into all of my roles through having conversations, asking hard questions and staying curious. Is there an example of that? That you can share? Yeah, I think with my role at TikTok, my role is the first of its kind there. And there were a number of jobs I could have applied for at TikTok at the time. However, in many of my interviews and just conversations with the team there, I spoke with TikTok for several months just about where I thought I could have impact, where we thought I could collectively come to help affect change and bridge gaps and drive impact. I think for me, in a lot of my roles where I'm carving out a position, it's about problem solving. It's always been about problem solving for me. I don't think I would be where I am now if I leaned into work, just sort of dreaming of the glitz and glam and, you know, leaning in with, that would be a really cool job. I'm leaning into that is a really hard problem. That's an interesting problem to solve. Mm-hmm. And there's a gap. If I think about my role at Twitter, when I got there, I was an intern doing whatever I was told to do <laughs> at first. 
but as an intern, I immediately seen the gaps in some of the issues and problems and thought about my skill set as a person, my identity, who I am, and how I can continue to not just show up as myself, but how do I enter into this space and try to start tackling some of these issues, even if from a macro to micro scale, even at my level as an intern, what does change look like? How do I plant seeds and or bring more attention to some of these gaps that I'm seeing and problems that I'm seeing? And then I think too, just leaning into what wakes me up every day, what keeps me passionate has helped when it's time to burn the midnight oil. When you're in the trenches and you're just like, what am I doing and why am I here? For me, there's got to be some kind of personal tie back or my heart just won't be in the work that I'm doing. Right. So what is keeping you passionate these days? Ooh, the <laughs> ongoing work that needs to be done. <laughs> Listen, I feel like it's you know, just this woo. weird scale of like the more that's thrown <laughs> our way right <laughs> or like we're passionate to fix it so it's just weird but the more exhausting it becomes it becomes so exa- so exhausting activism and advocacy can be soul draining because to your point it's just this never ending wheel of inequity you feel like you're trying to right so many wrongs and you're trying to reset the standard hit the reset button on so many levels, and it's exhausting and daunting on a systemic level. So I think for me, keeping hope alive is staying inspired, is spending time with my family, it's staying human, (laughs) Um, (laughs) taking care of myself. I'd say I'm more of an advocate for that now more than I've ever been. And part of it, too, is because you look on the internet, even Black creatives and underrepresented creatives, we're talking about these things now. We're documenting what that what that looks like for us. We're yep. documenting us at the spot, us reading a book, mm-hmm. us eating, us making food to nourish ourselves. We're not hiding. We're not hiding behind feeling bad for being tired and taking rest. And that's a shift for us if you're a millennial. It's huge because I feel, and especially if you're a black millennial or like a millennial of color, because so often we're told, and it is true, that you have to work twice as hard. That gets tiring. We're already doing jobs that are daunting and stressful. But like when you feel like you have, not to feel, you know that you have to show up like two times, three times better than your competitors, that takes a toll. That really takes a toll. And that's something that you actually talk about in your book. You say, you know, so there wasn't space for me. I had to create it. Where I wasn't welcomed, I had to invite myself. When the room wanted me to stay small and invisible, I had to make myself seen. Against all odds, I had to value myself enough to know that my voice and perspective mattered. And I think that it's just, that is exhausting. (laughs) It's important. And it's what we have to do, but it does take a toll. And so, yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up because it's just very draining. It is draining. It is. <laughs> it is very draining. And you have to take a break from that, too. Absolutely. One thing that you touch on in the book is how important Black people are to the culture of these social platforms. I mean, that's the Black internet effect. But so often there's a huge discrepancy between what Black people bring to these platforms and the representation within the companies or even the credit that's due and what they get paid. And so how have you seen that gap closing in any significant way. So there's been progress on a couple different levels that I've seen recently that has made me happier. (laughs) (laughs) One part of that being 
platforms realizing that there are opportunities to educate, to arm underrepresented creators with more knowledge around representation, around the role of a PR person in their career, around the role of, you know, having an attorney to look over contracts. I think a lot of the biggest hurdle for Black creators, and even as a creator, a part-time creator myself outside of work, the education gaps around the industry, the laws, your copyright, your IP, your intellectual property is a lot of what keeps us from asking the right questions and putting ourselves in positions where we're being offered what we deserve to be offered. I think the other aspect of this is just systemically, if you think about the entertainment industry, and you write about this so much, when it comes to representation for us, oftentimes we're, we're either representing ourselves <laughs> yeah. or we have others representing us and maybe not representing us in a way that's equitable or, you know, maybe there's like a 0.5% of Black talent managers or, you know, a CAA or a William Morris that has an XYZ agent who happens to be a person of color who happens to be championing your voice in a room full of other voices. I think part of that education gap that I've seen from companies, this is, yes, this is a plug, even the work that many colleagues of mine at TikTok are doing when it comes to building incubator programs and having a long-term commitment and investment to the success of creators and BIPOC creators because this flash in the pan virality, this flash in the pan popularity, it comes and it goes so fast. For you personally, I mean, you've, you've worked at Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. How has your relationship to social media evolved alongside these platforms? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'd say... Because you know the sausage is made. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Barely posting at this point. It's like, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think like the rest of the world, I've just become more visual. I've always been more of a visual storyteller and visual thinker. Starting at Twitter was interesting because obviously it it was very, very text-based when I started in 2012. When I was there, we launched video, we launched like a SoundCloud music card, we acquired Vine and dropped, we debuted Vine. Oh, R.I.P. Vine. I know. <laughs> like, I mean, <sighs> like Vine walked so TikTok could run, but like Vine was a moment. <laughs> Maybe you had to be there. <laughs> Period. Woo. Um, woo, yeah, such good things. My use of social media is pretty transactional, <laughs> honestly. I think that's real. Yeah. It's gotten more transactional over time just because I know the value of logging off, signing off, and keeping it where it needs to be for my mental health, for mm. my own sense of not losing my own sense of self. It's my job to be on social media. It's been my job to be on social media for so long that I have to remember it is a service and a platform in addition to it being my job. It can't just be my entire life. So that's sort of where... Can we normalize that? Because here's the thing. A lot of my yeah. friends wonder why I don't post enough because I'm the type of person I'll consume 
content. I think like, you know, scrolling through TikTok is just to me, I've said this so many times. It's like flipping channels on TV. Like it's just mm-hmm. if for better or worse. I mean, like it can definitely <laughs> suck you in for a while, but there's so much creativity and so much that I love that other people are doing, but for me to post my own stuff, it just feels like I'm trying to get better about it. I'm trying to find my own relationship with social media at this point yes. because there's so many creative projects that I do want to get out there. Yeah, you're so brilliant. We need your perspective. And it's going to happen. For any of my friends listening, I have a very bold project that I want to do in 2023 that you will see yeah. and hear about. But Keep me posted. Ooh, but you're right. It's transactional. I'm thinking about it in a way to like get that out there as opposed to like just you know sharing bits of my life and stuff like that. Because there's so much that I just want to keep to myself. And I feel like I give so much you of give myself. so much through my yeah. work, to my friends, to this, to that, that, like, I just kind of want to keep some to myself. And I just, I've always felt that way. And I've been, like, the outlier <laughs> among all of my friends. It's like finding a way to fall in love with social media again. And the best yeah. way to do that, and again, yes, this is a shameless plug, but I do feel like TikTok has re-inspired me to fall in love with social slash TikTok is so much of an entertainment platform. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes it no pressure. When I'm on TikTok, I'm laughing, I'm happy, I'm inspired. I'm I'm seeing things that are relevant to me. Like you said, I'm flipping through channels that are relatable to me and interesting to me. And I don't feel so much pressure to be perfect to, just as a creator, I feel it's ground for more experimentation than I would say for my Instagram or even Twitter. If I tweet something, baby, I'm looking copy editing. I'm Listen. I'm doing so much. It's an on the record quote. It may as well be an on the record quote. The so. anxiety that I get when I try to tweet something, it makes me like I'm, I'm paralyzed. I don't even want to do it. And it's so funny that you talk about like the like it's sort of experimentation because I had Wayne Brady on the podcast and he said the exact same thing. He's like, this is my rough draft. This is just where I have workshop things. And I'm like, yeah, the crown prince of like, you know, improv and creativity is saying that 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 means something. I'm glad that there is that space for people to just post things like you see so many jokes and skits that I'm like, it's so unpolished, but so funny. And it's kind of like (laughs) it doesn't have to be a whole setup that it's great if you have that. But it's also great you making jokes in your bed, you know, in your bonnet. And I love that. But it's hard to get there as the creative person. I do feel when it comes to me posting and me thinking about what am I going to say? What am I going to do? To your point about yourself, that's when the overanalyzing, the overperfecting, us being ourselves, right? It's the brilliance. It's the gift and the curse of the work that we do, the work that you're doing. So much of it is about soaking in information, research, keeping your head in the community, in what's going on versus kind of being able to zoom out and like productize yourself in this way. But my advice to you is curate your social according to what you love, what your interests are. You can have a social account that's for work, for media, for entertainment, for business consumption. Have a separate one that is all of what Casey loves, what keeps Casey inspired and fired up and what's feeding your soul, your creative soul, because me going to my social graph or my Instagram or my TikTok, that's what makes me be like, okay, I'm excited. I'm going to try this video. I want to try that edit. So that's what's keeping me inspired enough to where I'm like, okay, I'm going to do some content planning and take as long as you need for it to take. Yeah, That's my other last tidbit on that front. 
I love that. And speaking of you as a creator in your own right, I mean, you mentioned you play the flute, you write poetry, you rap. And when I say, ladies and gentlemen, when I say she raps, she can rap. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> that and means I a feel lot like you, KC, because I know you don't play with rap girls. You know me. I just, whew, I have a lot to say about the hip hop space, <laughs> but like, I, like, you are so good. And I, but I feel like, to my knowledge, there's not that much that you've put out that we can publicly consume. And so, do you think that you're allowing yourself enough time to develop your creative pursuits? For so long, I've made music for myself and more so as a creative outlet. And that's probably part of the reason why I even still like music and still want to keep creating music. That's fair. You know, <laughs> being on the other side of the industry, working in music myself, you see so many things. And I think at this point in my life, my expectations are so high for myself when it comes to putting out art, putting out music, putting out visuals. I have a vision for exactly how I want things to be, exactly how I want things to sound. Right now, I'm looking for producers. I'm working with newer producers. I'm locking in to try to get an EP or an album done. Thinking about more of a body of work versus these individual releases. But the individual releases have been fun for me because it's been me overcoming being my own biggest critic and just putting things out. I dropped my first two mixtapes forever ago, literally right after, when I was in college, I would say, on on Dat Piff, which tells you how old I am. <laughs> so you can find some crazy stuff on Dat Piff. But from a public consumption perspective, I have those two releases. I have Cheryl Swoops. I have 4C. I'm working on new music. I have unreleased music too. That, I, But I want these crazy visuals shot for. It costs money. This is true. You're doing it on your own. It also costs money. But I know what level I want to put art and do music at. So that's my standard. And that's sort of where I'm at with it. But I'm super excited to work on more music. People have been asking me and asking me like, When's the next drop? I'm like, I'm pulling it. Yeah, I'm one of them. <laughs> I'm one of them. Like, listen. I got some fire. You got to feed the way. children. I like, know. Be, like, I got some fire coming. <laughs> I'm feeding the streets. <laughs> Just to back up what I was saying earlier, that this woman can spit. I want to hear a little bit of 4C. For those who don't know what 4C <laughs> yeah. Like, just said to set this up a little bit. Right. So 4C is a curl pattern. It's my curl pattern as a Black woman. 4C is one of the most kinkiest hair patterns out there, specifically for Black women. It's known for its resilience and just how hard it is to manage, per se, but also how delicate it is and how representative that curl pattern is to Blackness and the power and beauty of Black women. And my mother owned a hair salon for about 25 years, and I grew up in a hair wow. salon. So 4C and the visual I shot with Susie, who is my friend at African Creature on social. And she is like a modern-day version of my mother. She owns a hair salon. She's Nigerian. Everything she does hey, is about everything she does right is about empowering black women and the ritual, the soul 
and self-care ritual of us getting our hair done and just how that restores our spirit, restores our pride. So let's hear a little bit of 4C from Siobhan. Sit back and realize that you ain't got nobody else. Sit back and realize that you don't need no fucking help. We gon' survive it. We don't need they fucking wealth. All about timing. Clock going, don't fail. We class over Zach, ain't no saves by the bell. The preacher claiming. I do love that song. It's good. Thanks, Casey. It's really good. I'm so glad. That's dope. Please. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, as if you didn't have enough on your plate, you know, with your full-time job, with you being this part-time creative. I mean, you all you mentioned this before. You have a creative group future of creative so yeah what really is your aim and what impact have you seen so far with future of creatives yeah future of creatives i am so excited about because i truly feel like it is the melting pot of everything that i am and sort of the legacy i want to continue to leave in the work that i've been doing i feel like it's this combination of all of my creative worlds across tech art fashion together in one so Future of Creatives is described as a tech-minded, multidisciplinary creative group, community platform, and soon-to-be membership-based network um, built to amplify, connect, and drive collaboration among underrepresented creatives. Another goal of FOC is to elevate the stories of underrepresented creators and drive equitable career development for next-gen creatives and people of color who work in creative disciplines that need more equitable representation. So FOC, as of right now, I have a waiting list of over 300 people who want to be a part of the organization from a membership-based perspective. And I'm really excited to build that out in the coming new year. Thus far, we've really been focused on cultivating safe, inclusive, disruptive creative community online and offline. I have a partnership with Soho House where we've been doing meetups and events and different things. Uh, this year, we did our inaugural Black Brilliance Brunch during Black History Month that was all about honoring Black creators, giving Black creators their flowers. And that was so incredible. We did it in Los Angeles. It was such a great turnout. We had Jaquel Knight speak. We had Angie Nwandu, Angelica Nwandu, who's the founder of The Shade Room. Oh, I interviewed her. She's great. Yeah. She's brilliant, literally. So we had also Breezy, um, who plays Coop, an All-American, who's another incredible just voice of our time. So really engaging, like I said, kind of all tiers of Black creators. We're at the end of 2022. What is your top prediction for 2023 as it pertains to the creator economy? Let me take a second to think about that. Mm-hmm. This year was a lot. Mm. This year was. Ooh. Hmm. I see a lot of educational content, knowledge being power in the creator economy with the creators in a way that, like this year, has been all about pulling the curtain back, all about exposing what needs to be exposed, all about vocalizing contracts, vocalizing terms. There has been a lot of legwork being done with creators and creatives realizing that there needs to be more transparency around deals. And now at an all-time high, you're seeing creators being booked for big TV and film opportunities for major blockbuster moments for bigger campaigns. So I think we're going to continue to see the world start to take 
the creator economy a lot more seriously, particularly the entertainment industry starts to take the creator economy a lot more seriously because creator economy is now becoming synonymous with just the entertainment industry. It is synonymous. I second that completely. I know from the conversations I've had, and especially with the investments that a lot of these companies are making to help these creators like level up their productions. Like these creators are becoming their own production studios in a way. And so, yes, like you talk to any kid, like they're not watching regular TV. They're like, they're watching YouTube. Like they're watching like, all these creators. They've been doing this. So it's sort of like, I think this has been the norm, but I feel like the big wigs, the powers that be are finally, ca- they're finally <laughs> catching up with finally, it. Finally, finally. It's like you said, it's not just like, oh, they're just like a creator. Oh, they just make little videos on YouTube. No, there's like major impact and major reach that these creators have. And so I'm really excited to see how traditional entertainment meshes with this creator space because for a while it was always the objective of creators to go to traditional entertainment we're past the point of it being like a creator just leaping like using their platform to leap into something else that's fine if you want to do it but i feel like what you do on tiktok and what you do on youtube that's valid now it may be difficult to monetize specifically with short form content but right it's still incredibly valid right it's valid screen time that's the t mm-hmm. it is just as a valid screen time as a Good Morning America or a cable TV. so spicy lately. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. So if more you know, come. you know, I'm not going to go. Yeah, don't. Okay. <laughs> let, let, let's not take a left now. <laughs> Woo. Anyway, Siobhan, I'm going to leave it right where it's at. And thank you so much for your time. This has been such a long time coming. Uh, I know. I'm just so incredibly proud of you because I feel like from that young woman who just was talking about Nicki Minaj to writing this amazing book, Black Internet Effect, it is so good. And I feel like if anybody needs like an affirmation <laughs> of like that they belong in the spaces that they fight to get into, like this book is it. So I'm just thank you, I'm just thrilled to see what you do next. Uh, I want to see you lean more into music because you yes. are so good. Oh, thank you, my friend. That's inspiring and motivating for me to make the time for myself and fight for myself. So I love that. I'm going to receive that. And I appreciate you so much. Please, 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 please. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of Creative Control. Make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And make sure you rate and comment as well. We always love hearing from you. Fast Company podcasts are produced by Avery Miles, Blake Odom, Matt Toder, and Julia Shu. Editing and sound design is by Nicholas Torres. Our executive producer is Joshua Christensen. Deputy editor David Litsky provided editorial oversight for this episode, as well as senior VP of entertainment Scott Mebus. 